0: Would you join me as I pray? Father, we come before your throne this morning still in, in mourning and distress over the brokenness in our world. And God, it has been a heavy few weeks. There are those still in deep sadness over what's happened, still others whose hearts are breaking, yet others who are angry confused. And our nation is still in deep despair. And we see that so clearly just north in Seattle with riots and protests and anger going to the length of destruction. Uh, These are sad and anguished and breaking days for our nation. And if we're honest, God, we don't know what to do except to bow the knee and to ask for your help we ask for wisdom and peace in these days. And Father, we come to you in the midst of chaos, and we cry out for rescue, you would give us peace, that you give us rest. And God, we ask for justice, and we pray for safety for the many police that have taken the sworn dedication to protect and to serve our community, those who would never desire to destroy people that care and stand up to injustice. There are many, even some in our congregation, that risk their lives each week. And we ask that you would protect them. We know that you see all and that you know all, and so we ask for justice to come. And we ask for justice for those who perhaps desire to peacefully protest the injustice in this world and then have resorted to destruction of property, but more importantly, to destruction of people. And God, we ask that you would bring swift justice there as well. We know we have an imperfect justice system, but we ask you to work through that system. Give wisdom to judges, courage to execute justice. And Lord, we echo the author of Proverbs who says, rescue those who are being taken away to death, hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. And if you say, behold, we did not know this, does he who weighs the heart Perceive it. Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And he will not repay man according to his work. And God, we have no excuses, your church, to not see what is happening right in front of us. So help us. Move us, convict us, to stand up for those that are being oppressed. We will not be able to say we were ignorant. Open our eyes and our hearts. And we do ask for peace. From the top officials down to the common citizens that fill our land, please bring peace. God, our leaders need you. Our country needs you. Every one of the 330 million people that live in this country need Jesus. And we praise your great name, that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And how will they call on him in whom they not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they not heard? And how are they here without someone preaching? And so, Savior, we ask that you would open our mouths at work, at home, even at the park now in our neighborhood, open our mouths to tell hell-bound sinners the good news of our risen Savior and reap a great harvest of souls in the U.S. And so we do pray from the president down to the newest immigrant to call your children to yourself and establish your church as one united, loving body in this land. Give all wisdom, wisdom that comes from you. May they submit not only their agendas to you, but may they submit their lives to you. And God, we do pray for our own congregation. May we be known more for our love and grace than our anger and opinions. And may we show love that only comes through you. May we be joyful people who remind ourselves weekly of the blessed hope we have in Jesus Christ. May we be peaceful people resting on your promises. May we be patient people, giving grace to those that we live with. I pray that we are kind to all that we come in contact with. And may the goodness of our Lord fill our hearts and spill out into our lives with our family and friends and our church. And I ask that we would stay faithful to you, Lord, in every turn of our lives. Now we ask that you would make us gentle, slow to anger, quick to listen, easy to love. And I ask that we would have self-control as a church in a world that loves things instantly, instant opinions, instant passion, instant anger. May we give grace to those as we pause and take deep breaths and control our words and control our actions. And Father, this morning we do pray for our sister Minnie Wilson who's about to depart from this world to meet you. And we ask that you would give her grace and give her peace. We love you, God. We love that we can know you and trust in you. And now I ask that we can learn more of you this morning as we look at your word in the gospel of Luke. May you use my words to preach your word for your honor and your glory. For We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome again. It's good to have you here. I can't tell you how much I've despised preaching to a camera for three months. But God is gracious in that, and uh, continue to pray that we'd have more and more ability to meet like this, and uh, thankful for all of you that could come here and uh, just be a part of the service. So we're in Luke. I started this series last week. I'm not sure if you were able to, to log on and see it. We had some issues last week uh, getting the service online, but hopefully those issues worked out this week. But we're in the, the continuing Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 26 through 45. How great an artist dies here. These were the last words of one of the greatest egotistical leaders of all time, the Roman emperor Nero. As he looked out on the funeral pyre that his servants were preparing for him, Nero had been injected from Rome in a military coup against his reign. And like King Saul on the battlefield against the Philistines, he decided to be more honorable to take his own life than to fall in the hands of Of his enemies. And so he looked out and wept and said of himself, how great an artist dies here. What conceit, what incredible narcissism. And yet, if we're honest, Nero's self-centeredness is not that unusual today. Maybe his words were especially audacious, but was his heart any less unique than what we see today? And here's an illustration for you to consider about yourself. If someone is talking to you for a long time and you become impatient and ready to get out of the conversation, how do you respond? Or when you're sitting in traffic and you become frustrated. Or when, even when someone in your home asks you to do some simple task, you become annoyed. The truth is, I believe, that we all can be Self-centered. And if you're a church member here, do you think of yourself as the center of the church? And you might think, no, I'm not up on stage. Of course I don't think I'm the center of the church. But how quickly do you assume that how you feel about something is how the rest of the church feels about that thing? From the setup of the church chairs, to the sound of the music, to the length of the sermon, to the subject of the sermon. Are there not subtle nuances to self-centeredness even in our church family. John Piper preached a number of years ago, and he asserted that God's chief concern in the entire universe is God himself. Are you offended at that idea? Does it sound strange for you to hear that God's chief concern is not you or any human or even all humanity, but himself The strange truth is that we are so egocentric that we naturally think of ourselves as central. So we say things like, God had to create us or he would have been lonely. Or he had to give us a choice between good and evil or we would just become puppets. Or or he had to save us after all he made us. And in those statements, in short, we think of ourselves as central to God. God. And we ultimately think of ourselves as central to ourselves. We can easily believe that this whole world is centering and rotating around us. Makes us feel better about ourselves. We can fall into the trap to believe that we are the central actor in the story. And God has come into our story now. And he's going to follow our script and all things will be better for us. But I have better news for you today. God doesn't so much enter into our story; He makes a story. God isn't the supporting actor in the story. Instead, He is the author in leading role. And this is what we see time and again throughout the Scriptures. The God of the universe is not always secluded in the minutiae of every day, but He's personally involved. And, and can there be any more personally involvement for God than the incarnation? and God is completely sovereign, and this morning we find that he chooses the weak and the powerless to point back to himself. See, the world seems to think that the powerful only choose the powerful to display their strength, but God shows us otherwise. So here's the main idea, and if you're gonna write down anything this morning, I really encourage everyone to get this main idea of what I want to convey in this passage this morning. So be ready here, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat it. The power of God doesn't belong just in history, but in the present. His power is mysterious, but not distant. His power strengthens the powerless. The power of God doesn't belong just in history, but in the present. His power is mysterious, but not distant. His power strengthens the powerless. And we see this most clearly here in the incarnation of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 1. So I have three points from this section of Scripture. Uh, First, God's present power, God's mysterious power, and God's strengthening power. And if you don't get these points, I'll put it on Facebook or something later and you can come back and get them. But God's present power, God's mysterious power, God's strengthening power. So, number one, God's present power. God's power is not something belonging only in history, but it's at work presently. And last week, we left off with the visit of, of Gabriel visiting Zechariah in the temple and informing him that he and his elderly wife would have their first child, and he this child would be the forerunner to Jesus Christ. And so we come now to Luke chapter 1, verse 26, and Gabriel is back. He says there in verse 26, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. The sixth month here is best seen in reference to Elizabeth's uh, sixth month of pregnancy. It's noted later in verse 36. So Gabriel comes now, and in verse 27 he comes to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was named Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And here we learn Mary uh, of Mary for the first time. She is a virgin, a, a young girl somewhere between the ages of 14 and 17. And she's betrothed to Joseph. Betrothed means that it was like an engagement. It was a pledge, which is a little more than an engagement. Uh, The bride's family would would have to pay a dowry uh, to the groom's family. But in the meantime, the bride would live with her family, and the husband would go and prepare by getting a home ready so that after they got married, they'd be ready to go. I did not get a dowry when I married Katie. If Katie's parents are watching, never mind. Verse 28, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. It's doubtful that Gabriel could have found a more unlikely person to greet anywhere in Israel. See, Mary was among the lowly. She was young, she was poor, an uneducated peasant living in a small country town far from the center of power. And furthermore, she was a woman. All those things equated a nobody in that time. And here comes Gabriel greeting her, O favored one. And we learn from this is God's grace is for the lowly, not the puffed up and mighty. And God certainly showed grace to Mary. The phrase here, O favored one, is from the Greek word for charity or or grace. And, And what it's saying is Mary is the recipient of grace, not the bestower of it. She is the special object of God's favor. And God was with her to bless her, not because of her own merit, but because of his own grace. And grace means to be treated with undeserved kindness. But, but Gabriel's greeting has often been misunderstood. See, Gabriel was not worshiping Mary, and he did not say she was full of grace. Unfortunately, those ideas come from false teaching of Roman Catholics. And the Catholic Church has taught for years, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of thy death. And friends, this is not a biblical prayer, although it has some biblical language. This prayer, this teaching of the Roman Catholic Church treats Mary as the source of grace rather than the object of grace. And many for hundreds of years now confused and misled to pray to Mary because they think that she has grace to give. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that Mary is the recipient of grace, not the repository of grace. When we look at the Greek word for favored, we see it in a passive participle. Mary was passive. She was acted upon. It refers to the grace that Mary was given by God not to any grace that she can give to others. And it's important to know what, what to believe about Mary here because there's so many in our world that have gone wrong. The Bible never says that Mary was without sin or that she remained a virgin or that she was able to give grace to sinners. And if you're here today or listening and come from a Catholic background, I hope you can hear all of this. Mary, Mary is not the one we're to worship She continues to point to God. She is not the lead actor. God is. And in this, we learn Mary is like us. And I can only imagine how it would grieve Mary to know that some people worship her. And the Bible is clear beyond the fact that she was the mother of Jesus is that she was saved by grace. And so the way that Mary helps us is not by giving us grace but by showing us that God can give us the same kind of grace that He gave her. See, her experience is not ours. Nevertheless, her example is for us. She received grace from God, and that proves that God shows unmerited favor to, to us, the lowly sinners. Even when we feel small and insignificant, overlooked by the world, we can know that God is for us. Have you ever felt like your life is too small? for God to notice, too insignificant for God to be aware of you? I'm sure that's perhaps what Mary was feeling. And you can hear it in her words, look at verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. See, God's power doesn't just belong in history, it was present here with Mary. Mary. And in this scene, the angel will clarify what this visitation means, but he will not disclose everything that will happen to Mary. See, Mary will spend the most of the infancy narrative in a state of wonderment and must ponder the stupendous events without any angel there to interpret it for her. So that's first, God's present power. Second, God's mysterious power. God's mysterious power is not distant. And Gabriel continues, he says in verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which, by the way, means God saves. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. Jesus is greater than John, and he's the long-awaited Savior, bringing God's never-ending rule to the people of Israel. And so great is God's greatness that he alone deserves to be called Great. By saying that Jesus would be great, therefore, Gabriel was testifying to the deity of Jesus Christ. No one is greater than Jesus. Jesus is great in wisdom, great in power, great in love, and great in majesty of his divine being. His greatness is the greatness of God. And he says, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And with these words, the angel announces the greatest event in human history, the coming of the Son of God. And these are the words that the world has been longing to hear. He says he will be called the Son of the Most High, which, has, which is just rich in Old Testament background. Second Samuel 7:13 says and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And this is David talking about his son but it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then it says verse 14 I will be to him a father and shall be to, my, to me a son, my steadfast love will not depart from him and as I took it from Saul whom I put away before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever. And the only kingdom that has no end is God's kingdom. The Davidic throne is clearly this regal image drawn from the Davidic covenant's promise of a son and a house and an everlasting rule, and it's applied and seen fully in Jesus Christ. Well, Mary responds in verse 34. She says to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? The first advent of our Messiah was to be an advent of humiliation. Humiliation. And we need to be careful not to despise poverty in others and to be ashamed of it in ourselves. Jesus, Son of God, came to this poor couple. The condition of life that Jesus voluntarily chose should cause us to pause and consider our lives, to pause and consider what we're striving for in this world. And see, there's a common tendency in all of us to bow the heads to those of prestige and honor and richness sometimes to make an idol out of money or fame but these urges friends should be resisted second corinthians 8 says though he was rich yet for our sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich we should pause and admire the amazing condescension of the son of god See, Mary here was not doubting the word spoken. She wanted to know the mechanics of how it will happen. She asked, how will this be, not how can this be? She isn't asking for a confirmation. She's not asking for a sign like Zechariah did. And Mary was stumped as to how this would happen. I'm also, I believe, thinking that she was just humbled by this. Her, why, why me is, is kind of the question. She's young possibly even too young to have a child. Friends, suppose it was your job in the next week to share news with a friend that he had just inherited $2 billion through some distant relative that he never met. And it's your job to come and share this news. And so you go and tell him, and he says to you, you know, it doesn't surprise me one bit, really, because I always knew something great was going to happen to me. What would you say to them? I would say you've been walking around with a veil of illusion, buddy. You didn't know this would happen. You had no idea. I mean, anybody who was not surprised by an inheritance of $2 billion shows all along that they're out of touch with reality. And in the same way, Mary's first response is incredible, impossible. How will this be? And if you've never gone through a stage like that, you probably have never really seen what the Bible actually promises. You've probably never seen what the size of the promise the gospel makes. See, Mary here has more wonder than doubt. She sees the bigness of God here. She's in awe of his greatness. So the angel responds in verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Her her virginity is presented as an obstacle to conception that can only only be overcome by the miraculous creative power of God. And John's conception is extraordinary, but Jesus' conception is beyond extraordinary. When Gabriel says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you to Mary, he does not mean that God would impregnate her, as some Muslims slanderously believe. What a horrible thought. Now he says the power of the Most High will overshadow you, And when he says the most high will overshadow you, he uses the same word in the Greek Old Testament, translation to describe of the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters upon creation in Genesis 1. This reminds us of the Holy Spirit has been actively involved in everything that God has ever done. The Spirit was present at creation. He overshadowed the waters there. The Spirit was present at the exodus when he overshadowed the tabernacle in a cloud of glory. The Spirit would overshadow Jesus, anointing him for his earthly ministry. And the Spirit was there when he, when he charged the church to go out in ministry in Acts 1. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Stephen Wellum, in his masterful work, God the Son Incarnate, writes this. The virgin conception of Jesus, then, is not a progressive, natural development. It did not originate in the will of man. Rather, the conception of Jesus is a divine intrusion, the last great culminating eruption of the power of God into a plight of humanity as the first man of new creation now arrives in fulfillment of all Old Testament expectations. And it's crucial for us to see the hand of God in the virgin birth of Christ and to believe that it's true because it's the testimony of the scriptures. And, and every year, there's new studies, there's, there's new articles that go out into magazines that are striving to discredit the virgin birth, because believing in the virgin birth is a first-level doctrine. And if you pull out the string of a virgin birth, com- the complete weaving of who Jesus Christ is will fall apart. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then he was born with sin, and if he's born with sin, then he couldn't be our Savior. Wellam continues, he says, Jesus was not conceived in Adam, but by the divine power of the Holy Spirit, so that the glory presence of God the Son assumed a human nature. Don McLeod adds, Adam begot a son in his image, but Adam did not begat Christ. The Lord's existence has nothing to do with Adamic desire or Adamic initiative. Christ is new. He is from the outside. And very simply, God could not assume a fallen human nature. And so to de- deny either Christ's deity or his humanity is to de- deny the Jesus of the Bible and to rob us of a redeemer. And so God's power is mysterious. It's it's peculiar, but it's not distant. And then third, God's strengthening power. When we faithfully read the Bible, We what we continually find is that God's power empowers the powerless. Over and again, from Moses to Joshua to David, God comes in power and authorizes power for those that are serving him for his glory. God's power isn't distant or even normal. It it comes down to live among us. And what we read here is that God gives Mary a sign, even though she didn't ask for one. He says... And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. A barren post-menopause woman was going to have a baby. And then he says in verse 37, For nothing will be impossible with God. Our eternal God can take on Flesh and blood, and become a man if he chooses. Who are we to tell him what he can and cannot do? And, friends, the moment you admit the existence of God, you must deny the impossible. When with God, there's nothing impossible, nothing bars him from bringing a baby to a barren woman or a virgin. For nothing will be impossible with God. I don't know if you're reading the NIV, but I appreciated the rendering there of verse 37. It says, for no word from God will ever fail. No promise of God, no command of God, no words of God will ever fail. They won't fall to the ground unfinished. For when we believe that it's too big, too mighty to happen, he reminds us again, nothing is impossible with God. So is there anything in your life right now, friends, that seems impossible? It's good to look out and see faces, by the way. (laughs) Perhaps it seems impossible for a great sin that you've committed to be forgiven. Especially after all the times you've tried to not do it. Perhaps it seems impossible for your family to heal after deep wounds that have been left festering for years. Perhaps it seems impossible for your physical and financial needs to be met. Perhaps it it feels impossible for your emotional needs to be seen and your loneliness to go away. And you might think it's impossible to endure the suffering that's now come in and seemingly overtaken your life. Or even more so, you think it's impossible for that someone that you've been praying for for years to be saved. And friends, the Bible says nothing will be impossible with God because he is the God of the virgin birth. There is no sin he cannot forgive, no relationship that he cannot reconcile, no problem that he cannot resolve. There's no need that he cannot meet. There's no grief that he cannot comfort. And there's no sinner that he cannot save. And the God of the virgin birth is the God who makes all things possible. And so trust him. And I pray that we will respond like Mary. You see her response here in verse 38? It's astounding, actually. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Zechariah stumbled in unbelief, but Mary yields in faith. She chooses to trust God. You know, she sounds a lot like her Savior who prayed in the garden 33 years later, Father, not my will, but yours be done. This is how faithful people respond to God's plan, even when they don't understand it all. She reaffirms her service to God and says, I am the servant of the Lord, which which literally means that she is the Lord's slave. She will obey because she knows who owns her, who loves her. It's her Lord. And how rare it is to find someone who's willing to trust God for the impossible and then to obey Him without hesitation. Hear her words. I don't want you to jump over this. Her words are very significant. In this moment, she is surrendering her hopes, her dreams, her reputation, her rights, and even her body to God. Think of the risk that Mary is making here. She'll be shamed as a fornicator. No one will want to believe her that she didn't have a relationship with someone else. She could be divorced now, which won't just affect her life, but her family's life as well. She'll be ridiculed, and scorned by others. Her dreams are gone. These teenage dreams of hope and, and what the future's going to look like are, are gone. Her rights were finished. Now, I've heard, although I've never experienced this myself, but being pregnant kind of takes away some rights. Right? Like the right to sleep. Is there any amens from women that have had babies? The, The right to go to the bathroom when you want to. Energy. What you eat. All of that taken. Her reputation would be scarred. Can you imagine the gossip that would follow her as she went in the town, Scarlet A, that would be on her. And so her response to the Lord here is no small matter. And there would be even more hardships that she didn't even realize in these moments. I mean, put yourself in Mary's shoes. If you've ever read the Bible, then you know what else would be in store for her and her son in particular. Jesus would be mocked. He would suffer, his life would be threatened to the point that her and the family even tried to get Jesus to go another part of the country or leave ministry altogether. And at the end, where's Mary? She endures seeing his arrest. Watching that trial and the crucifixion, and then his bloody burial. See, Mary would stand beneath his cross and hear her son instruct John to care for her. And she would see his nail-pierced hands, the water and the blood pour from his side. This was the boy she raised. She nurtured him for years before releasing him to the world. He was the one that was inside her womb and she could feel the kicking. That's her boy. This is what it would mean for Mary to submit to God and his will for her life. And friends, it was pure grace that God did not tell her all that would happen to Jesus in these moments. Because our human hearts can't, bear to have all that information. God is gracious by giving her the needed information for the moment. And like Mary, we cannot be servants of the Lord unless we accept his plan for our lives. He cannot be Lord if we insist on ruling our own lives. Mary knew that she was owned by another. Do you understand that? Do you believe that, Christian? Have you humbled the knee to God and salvation? Today is the day to repent of your sins and to believe in Jesus for salvation. And because Christ is fully God and fully manned, he is the perfect Savior. He needed to be God to supply the righteousness humans could not achieve And he needed to be a man to supply to God the sacrifice that we owe. And so he became the only mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And he was the only way for men to come to God. So if you're here or if you're watching online and if you've never turned to Christ for salvation, trust in him today. Well, let me read the last section here. I won't be able to go through all of it. Verse 39 In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. We tend to believe that it was Peter who was the first to confess Jesus as Lord, but we were wrong. It was Elizabeth. Even in the mother's womb, we find John pointing to Christ. We're going to come back to this section last week. Honestly, I ran out of time that I was writing, so there's more here, and uh, we're going to look at those verses next week, Lord willing. So in preparation for next week, and I'm not done yet, but in preparation for next week, read verses 39 through the end of the chapter. (laughs) But let me, let me tie things up here. Uh, the great theological truth that Luke is bringing to the forefront uh, by including these events in his account is that God's salvation will come in power in seemingly impossible ways. Jesus will say later in Luke's gospel in chapter 18, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so the point is clear. Salvation must come in a way that only God can accomplish so that we will know that God has done it and so that he might get all the glory. Most of you know that I have some little kids that run around in my house. They won't leave. They're there every day. I am happy for that, by the way. A couple of years ago, I was cleaning a car and I took out a car seat, it was a car seat we had bought in Sweden, and Swedes are ridiculous about their car seat safety, and it had all these belts and all these things. So I pulled it out, pulled all the belts out, set it aside, and was going to reinsert it in another car later. But when I went to go back a few weeks later to put it back in another car, I couldn't find all of the belts. And if you have little kids in your house, they're easy to blame, when things go missing. So that's why I assumed that some child found it, thought this is fun, I'm going to play with this, and snatched it. And we searched. It just drove me nuts. And and I couldn't find it. And, And we gave up. We thought, well, I guess we're not using that car seat. A month later, I was getting a pair of shoes out from the top shelf in our garage and heard a clinking sound when I grabbed the shoes, pulled it down, looked inside, and there was the belts. I had put it there thinking I would remember, and I didn't. And in that moment of relief, I grab him, and I'm, I'm laughing of wonder that we, you know, I'd looked and wanted to look, and I couldn't find him. And I go inside, and, and, and I laugh, and, and I share with Katie what, what I found, which was lost. And there was astonishment there, because we had searched, couldn't find it. Because in a, in a million years, I would never found it, I don't think, But the seatbelts found me when I wasn't looking. And that's what the Bible says about Christianity. That's what the Bible says about God and you. Somebody ask: do you look at yourself and are you amazed at yourself? Do you sit right now and say, I remember when I didn't believe these things. How could I have lived without it? How could I have lived without God? How could I have been so stupid? I was blind. I was lost. If, if you don't think of yourself that way, if there's no sense of joy and wonder about your life now, if you don't look at yourself and say, For me, for me to be a Christian, of all people, me. But instead, you, you, you live your life saying, Of course. Of course it's me. Of course I'm a Christian. I was raised a Christian. I lived a good life. I, I had good parents. Of course I'm saved. Of course, I believe and I follow the rules. Of course, I'm a Christian. And if your attitude is that, I fear that you've never understood the gospel. Your religion is a religion of what you do, how you perform, finding God instead of God finding you. I was raised in a Christian home. I went to church growing up but never in a million years would I have found Jesus if God hadn't come and found me. Never in a million years would I stand before you saved if Jesus hadn't come first to open my eyes. Do you understand that about yourself? Are you amazed? Salvation must come in a way that only God can accomplish so that we will know that God has done it and that God will get the glory and not us. Salvation is all about God. See, God doesn't just enter a story. He makes a story. He writes a story. And he's the author, and he's the main point of it all. And this is an amazing story, one that should astound us. It should shock us still. And so we're going to sing about this as we close our time, about the glorious grace in saving us. And we're going to sing how great thou art. When we see God, we stand amazed that he chose us. And the verse, it says, when I think of God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die. I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Let's pray. Father, you've been so good to us. How good it is for us to be able to gather this morning, at least a portion of our church family. And God, we, we long for that day when we're able to gather all together. And we ask God to bring that day soon. And in the meantime, Father, give us grace. Help us to live in light of the gospel. Help us to never grow tired of remembering how you saved us. And you give us power to go now as we leave this place to share this good news with everyone we know. For we ask it all in Jesus' name.